a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 91 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Her episodes, they broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. You can also find them on iTunes and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Erlin, and with me like a bad case of the Sith, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. No, man, I... I think you read that wrong. I have IBS, so it's not a bad case of the Sith. I think you need to rearrange those letters sometimes. <laughs> oh, Sithly. <laughs> Speaking of that particular expletive, uh, and the Sith at the same time, the topic we're dealing with this time around is, I think it's kind of one of those topics that somewhat divides fandom right now. I don't think it's because of anything particularly controversial. It's not a an extreme divide or anything like that. Certainly it's not... The kind of uh, a visceral reaction you get out of something like uh, Darth Vader and the Ninth Assassin's lack of plot or anything like that. But um, I do find that this is one where there's a lot of division over the artwork and some division over whether this series should exist at all, which makes, I think, a nice fertile ground for discussion. So that being said, Mark, what are we talking about this time? Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions questions that have bothered you for a long time, or those simple ones that have perplexed you off and on, you ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we look at Star Wars Legacy Volume 2 by Dark Horse Comics. Now, before we get too deep into spoilers, we'll give you the quick spoiler-free rundown. Be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. Yeah, the topic here, this, this Legacy Volume 2, um, I was very trepidatious about this to begin with, to be honest with you. Uh, as listeners of this show probably know by now, my favorite Star Wars comic series of all time was the original Legacy. Uh, Jan Dersima and John Ostrander with their uh, every so often pickup artists, their uh, temporary artists for those stories that weren't necessarily about Cade and the main characters. They created this really, really cool story set in an entirely new era with enough ties back to previous eras to really feel like it was very much connected and gave us very flawed characters. Characters that, in a lot of ways, were more human than some of the other ones that we got in the EU. They just felt like they were more on the edge. Um, I think maybe that's why, for instance, you know, that type of feel is why we have Fantasy Flight Games putting out Edge of the Empire as their first RPG set. Uh, not going after the Rebels and the Imperials or going to the Jedi or anything like that, but focusing in on uh, the smugglers, the fringers, the drifters, people like that, because there's more chances for significantly flawed characters that don't have some extreme heroic dynamic sort of thrown onto them artificially or not. So I was a little bit concerned hearing that not only was there going to be a new Legacy series, but that it was not going to be by the same team. It's going to be by people who are brand new to Star Wars, in this case, Corinna Bechko doing the scripting, and uh, her husband, Gabriel Hardman, doing the art, with Hardman also helping on the storyline and script. Um, as 
the series goes along. So another of these teams that should work well together, in this case, husband and wife, though, people we hadn't seen in Star Wars, and that we're going to be focusing in on this new Solo character that we'd never heard of in the previous series, uh, Anya Solo, A-N-I-A. And this was a character that was kind of intriguing. You got to wonder where the heck she was during all the stuff of the previous series. But then there was all the, the well... She's the great-granddaughter. No, the great-great-great-granddaughter. Well, no, and they kept going back and forth on who she was in relation to the Solos until now they've dropped it and said, well, we want to make that connection somewhat vague so other people can fill out that story later. Same thing like between the connection of Ben Skywalker and Cole Skywalker to connect things together for the original Legacy series. Upon getting the issue and seeing some of the previews online, uh, I'm immediately struck by the art style which is not a style that I'm particularly fond of at all. We're going to talk about it, of course, in more depth later, but this is an art style that, to me, drains a lot of the life out of a story in terms of its color choices, the muted nature of the colors, uh, the lack of clarity in some cases, and if you can believe it, as they move into the second arc, they bring in another new artist whose art style is even more vague and less clear, uh, which I guess sort of means the same thing, uh, than this style of artwork. Uh, that being said, though, I was excited enough about it that when it came out, I picked up uh, both of the variants that were out there. There was the Phantom variant you could get um, from specific comic retailers. I got one of those that was signed by the creative team, and I did wind up, thanks to a friend of mine who went out to uh, the WonderCon convention, was able to get a copy of the WonderCon cover variant. So I've got all three covers of this thing, the regular and those two, but... I think the hype around this was a little overblown. It wasn't nearly as much overblown as, say, Star Wars Volume 2. But at the same time, this is not a series that so far has reached out and grabbed me with the same intensity as, say, the original Legacy, even when it comes to the first arc being compared of each one. I see potential here, but it really isn't until we get to the first issue of the second arc that I feel like they have any real sense of where they're going and that the series has potential. In the first arc, it very much fell somewhat flat for me. So it's going to be a, an interesting review, I think, this time around. It's not something that's bad. It's not something that's great. It's something that's good with potential, but something that has its own things that sort of drag it down from what I guess I was, I was hoping for. I was hoping for Legacy Volume 1 Redux in terms of the creative <laughs> style, the art style, and the quality level. And instead, we got something that is very different. Uh, from the original legacy, about as different as you could get without being in a completely different era. Well, it's hard not to go into this one with uh, pre-expectations. I mean, you know, there was a high standard set with the first legacy. I mean, John and Jan, the dream team of Dark Horse Comics, they set the bar high. I mean, you know, I was excited. There there were plots and and details, tidbits, things like that from the first series that I still wanted to know more about. Um, you know, the, the Mandalorian arc, that, that was one that was demanding that the series continued. I was waiting for word that there was going to be more legacy because, you know, Hondo Carr is still out there gunning for Mandalore, trying to take back his place in the Mandalorian culture. Uh, so I still want that story. I know that that's out there. Um, the other side of it was, you know, Cade, uh, he knew about the family over in Hapes, as did the Empress Fell. So I was curious as to, you know, how the solo side went. There was that curiosity and the preconceived notions that I had that, you know, the solo family was still royalty and hapes and all that. Um, I think for me that that's the, the biggest letdown so far is the lack of the detail. I mean, you mentioned the art, 
art is one, but for me, the backstory. Like, I was really hoping to get more backstory with this one. It's kind of like, you know, when Legacy 1 came out, we got two zero issues. We got all this stuff to kind of set the stage. And then this one came out, and it's like, oh, we're just going to, we're going to hang on the coattails of the last series. And yet it's set completely different enough that you're completely lost jumping in. You really have no idea what's going on aside from the major events that went down in the first series. I mean, beyond that, you have no idea what's going on in the sector space. You have no idea what's going on with Anya Solo's character, why she owns a junkyard, things like this. Um, and, and, and for me, that's that's the kind of stuff I really was looking forward to. I mean, I'm kind of bummed that there are no zero issues for this to kind of help flesh out the characters. I'd love to know more about the characters in the first arc. Uh, you know, you've got uh, AG37 and, and Sock. Uh, you know, there, there's some backstory on both of those I would love to know more about. Your, your Imperial Knights, I'd love to know more about them as well. I mean, I, I reread this last night. I grabbed all of the first six issues. I did not realize that issue six was the first of the second arc. And honestly, it reads like the end of the first arc better than it does the first of the next arc. Uh, and rereading them all, I have to admit, I was more impressed with the story altogether than I was in the single issues. And the single issues, as I was reading, I was, I was just one letdown after another. Like, I was not getting into the story. I wanted to. I really was looking forward to getting in on the whole, you know, Han Solo type character here. And it's female. Anya, she's going to rock it. But I have no whys. Like, why do I care about this character? Aside from the fact that she's Han and Leia's ancestor, there is nothing that they're giving me to make me want to know more. I mean, you know, she discovers a lightsaber and suddenly she gets all greedy. Like, oh, this is going to we're going to sell this for millions. This is going to be our key out of here. And it's like, wait, what is it? What's your driving force here? I mean, it sounded like you wanted to be the drifter. You wanted to own this junkyard. Now it sounds like you're running from a life that you hate. Like there's no background of the character to make me really care. And then you couple this with the art style that it's very detail lacking. And it's easy to kind of gloss over a lot of this. And I think that might have been my issue when I got the single issues was that the art style, there was nothing really there to latch onto. So when I normally read a comic, I'll flip through and I'll look at the art first, kind of see what the story tells me without the words. And then I'll go back over it and I'll find Tooth Comb, read it. And then I'll also look back at the art and see if any of the details in the art kind of add to the dialogue. In this case, you don't have that because there's very little detail in the art. More often than not, I'm like, wait, what is going on? Like I had to go back and look at the scene again. I mean, there's there's a scene where one character is in a ship that gets blown up and then all of a sudden he jumps in another ship and takes off. But when you go back to the scene before, you don't see many ships and none of them look like the ship that he jumps in the second time. It looks like the same ship that blew up all of a sudden rehealed. Uh, another scene where you see a Star Destroyer and then from the inside you look out a window and there's another Star Destroyer. But in the earlier scene, the Star Destroyer was all by itself. It's like, those little details are missing. And for me, I'm the kind of fan that I'm looking for those kind of things. And so I realize that most of my issues with the series are all stuff that I can't, the baggage that I brought coming in, I was expecting a lot more. Uh, the, the bar was set really high, I guess. And so I'm having a hard time getting over that hurdle. Uh, but like I said, I, I read the first six issues, six issues last night. I really enjoyed the story. I, I was always intrigued with what was going on with the Sith in this. And after reading it all, you know, like I said, one through six, I'm really excited about that aspect of the story. In fact, I would say that aside from learning more about Anya and how she got to where she is, that is the whole plot of the story is just what's going on with the Sith. It, 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 I'm conflicted. Like, like if I had to give you a spoiler free review on it right now, it's one I would say 
you might want to check it out, but you might also want to wait until the series is a little farther on. I, I almost liken it to Lost. Like, I didn't get into Lost or, or even Prison Break until, like, they were about into their third and fifth seasons or so, give or take. You know, I mean, Lost, it was the fifth season. With Prison Break, it was third. But it was one of those, I was kind of skeptical to get in on it, and everybody was like, ah, this show's really cool. And I'm like, I don't know. It doesn't quite look like it. And then once it had quite a plethora of backstory that, that I could just jump into and get it all at once, I really enjoyed it and I dug it a lot. But when I was watching just a single episode on TV, I'm like, I don't know about this. And that's kind of the feeling I get with this. Yeah, it definitely reads better as one whole than it does as the individual issues. Uh, if you're going to pick this up, I would say get them either all at once or go through and get the trade paperback. Uh, as far as uh, the, uh, the the depth of the characters, I think you're right. There's just not a lot of depth there. It reminds me a lot and I've made this comparison before when we talked about uh, John Jackson Miller's storytelling style, of Jacob Michael Straczynski's Babylon 5. In that, in a lot of ways, this is season one of Babylon 5. We're just getting to know the characters, are just being introduced, there's some clumsy moments in there, and even the visual style fits, because if you are a fan of Babylon 5, you know that the visual quality changed significantly between season one and season two. Not just in terms of the effects, but simply just the quality, it seems like, of the picture itself and its clarity and such. Um, and that's kind of what we have right now. We have a a dingier type of, of situation. Now, granted, they do this, in theory, on purpose. Uh, I want to give you a bit of what is said in the opening page, here, or the opening uh, letters page before there are actual letters about the series, uh, when Randy Stradley is commenting on the premise of the series. He says, return with us now to the thrilling future of the Star Wars saga. When we last visited the time period, approximately 138 years after the events of A New Hope, which is when this takes place, right right after Legacy War, the legions of the One Sith, led by the nearly unkillable Darth Krayt, have been overthrown by an alliance of Jedi, Emperor Rowanfell's loyalist forces, and the Galactic Alliance fleet. At the center of the battle to defeat the Sith was Cade Skywalker, a reluctant Jedi and heir to the Skywalker legacy. Cade walked the halls of power and rubbed elbows with Empresses and Jedi Council members. Things are a little bit different for his distant cousin, Anya Solo. Sure, she's a descendant of Princess Leia Organa and Han Solo. That and a handful of credits might get her a cup of calf. The galaxy is just too big a place and its collective memory too short to care about a young woman many times removed from her famous progenitors. There's no confiding in royalty or consulting with Jedi for Anya. For her, it's a life at the bottom, struggling for everything she owns. And when she finally gets a chance for a big score, that chance is tangled up in a minor Imperial disaster and a Sith scheme. Fortunately, she inherited a good deal of luck, pluck, and sass. Uh, so it's definitely supposed to be something that is far removed. Maybe that's why they went for, for such a drastically different art style. And I will say that as much as these characters have yet to really grab me and really only start to do that as we get into issue six and the beginning of the second arc, um, I will say that I like the fact that in this series they have done something or, or tried to perhaps correct something that we've talked about on this show before, a couple of topics we've talked about on this show before, which is now we have a woman as the protagonist, and she is a strong female character or is going to be built to be one. Uh, Anya Solo is someone you can see becoming someone more like a Princess Leia than a Padme Amidala, someone who will be up in your face and strong, as opposed to being someone who will be strong at one point and then wind up becoming weak, fluffy, uh, window dressing to only lose the will to live later. Uh, but also, on top of that, now it's hard to tell if you were to look and try to compare the images on the covers versus the images inside the book in this artist style and the next artist style, but correct me if I'm wrong, but it looks like both Jedi, or excuse me, uh, Imperial Knight, 
Master Yaltaval, and Master Zhao Awesome. Yes, they recognized that it was an unintentional use of the phrase Joe Awesome in one of the letters pages. I think Val and Zhao are both black men. And we have not seen, we've talked about before, about how there's all kinds of diversity in terms of species in Star Wars. But when it comes to diversity among skin tones of the human characters, a lot of times it seems very whitewashed in a sense. A topic that has come up certainly very much recently in nerddom in relation to the casting of Benedict Cumberbatch as a certain character in Star Trek Into Darkness. Um, and here we have two men, two strong characters who are apparently going to be ongoing main characters of the series, at least based on what we're seeing as we move into the second arc, and unless I'm mistaken, they are both black, or at least they are well, both one... not Caucasian. Yeah, one looks, I, I think Jow looks black, whereas uh, Val kind of looks almost Hispanic. Like, or, I, yeah, I that, or, that or perhaps even even like a, a an Arabic background yeah. type, a, a much darker skin tone than what we usually see. Yeah, they're, Star they're Wars mocha, characters. they're little uh, dark chocolate looking, you know, I mean, and, and that that was nice. I, I, I too liked it. I, I wanted to say real quick, uh, you know, you mentioned about maybe waiting for a trade. Uh, you know, the, the thing that leaps out at me, I'm getting these all single issues. And in the first one, it says at the beginning, when you first open the letters page, and you also note that the letters page is different. They've, this was the uh, first issue, I believe, where they changed the styling on the insides of their covers. But it says, Prisoner of the Floating World Part 1. And from there on out, that drops off. You have no idea if you're in part one, part two, part five, part six, part whatever. Uh, it, it literally, that's the only time you see where it goes from. Uh, and, you know, after I read all six of these issues, I went back and then discovered, hey, oh, issue six is part one of the next one. I, I found that on the Wikipedia. But I really don't think if you were to sit down and read, if you were to just grab the trade paperback, I think that's a bad idea. I think if you grab it, you should wait at least until there are enough single issues of the second arc out there that you can get to read at the same time or wait and get the first two arcs together. I really think that first issue of the next one really complements the first story. I, I don't think – like if you were to just go out and get the trade paperback of the first one, I don't think you're going to enjoy it as much as if you had the first two trades and were to read those both together. I, I mean granted, it's still going in the second one, but that first issue really complements a lot that first arc. I really don't – I, I mean, I think when they put it in a trade, I, I almost think like they, they should add it. Like, I really do not see that as the beginning of another arc. It really feels like a closing to this one. So in that regard, like I, I would say if you're going to get it in the trade, I'd wait until there's a little bit more of the second arc out there and then go from one right into the other. I think you're going to really enjoy it that way. I, I just a little more hesitant, though, just to say if you were to grab just that trade arc. And read that one arc. I don't know if you would have as I don't know. The ending just doesn't feel very clear. It kind of feels like a uh, Back to the Future to be continued moment where you're just like, what, really? Wait, that's not an ending. Why? I gotta come back. When? When? I guess that's a good place to start diving into the individual issues here. I will try to keep the uh, the summarizing a little shorter this time for a matter of time, and the fact that well, there's just uh, not as much stuff it seems like in some of these issues. We've analyzed their attacks, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. So consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentient of All Ages, because here we go. The first issue picks up with this mission that's being undertaken on behalf of the Galactic Triumvirate, or the Galactic Federation, Triumvirate. We know, of course, 
that that is the combination of what was the Galactic Alliance remnant and Rowanfell's Imperial faction and the Jedi, all sort of combined together. Uh, still being represented by Admiral Gar Stasi, by Kukruk, and by Maris Fell, as was the case at the end of Legacy War. And they are sending Master Yalta Val, uh, who is an Imperial Knight, as part of a mission basically to uh, set up and guard these big, uh, it's basically a communications array that will start to connect the galaxy a little bit better now that the One Sith is, in theory, a defeated faction and not something that is as much of an issue in the galaxy. They're trying to sort of get things back to a sense of normalty or normalcy. Speaking of that normalcy, I I got the feeling that part of that was in direct correlation to what had happened during the New Jedi Order with the the way the Vong had kind of wiped out the holonet. Like, I've always been under the impression that after that happened in the New Jedi Order, they have been struggling to kind of rebuild that communications array that was lost because they built those uh droxen or whatever they were they had the bugs that would go and they would feel the the i don't know like the calm burst and they would follow it back to the source and when it would stop even like the remote ones when it would stop they'd wait and then would come on again they'd move and so they were able to track them all down and and wipe them out so that feeling kind of came across in that that this was them trying to rebuild that communication system that had been lost years and years ago I don't know if you had that feeling. I don't know. I mean, to an extent, at least as far as the stuff on these sort of further fringe areas, but I don't think that they, if that was the case, I don't think that Legacy and Legacy of the Force and Fate of the Jedi uh, and even uh, Dark Nest were clear enough in that whole situation. It seemed like they just sort of, if there's a communication issue because of what happened with the Yuuzhan Vong, it was a convenient plot point, not necessarily something that was constantly present. Um, uh, but on yeah, the I way, see that. on the way, they wind up. Uh, finding themselves uh, chased by another ship and then crashing down onto a planet that's not supposed to be there, the so-called floating world of Prisoner of the Floating World, a planet we learn later um, uh, from, I think, the letters page, is known as Mala, M-A-L-A. Don't say it twice or that's a character and don't add an L or it's Chewie's wife. Um, at Once on the surface, two Sith emerge from the pursuing craft and take out a bunch of the stormtroopers that were there to be with Val. Uh, one of the Sith, the Master, who is never given a name, is able to incapacitate Val briefly. And then the uh, Sith Apprentice, who we will later learn is Master Red, W-R-E-D-D, uh, <laughs> kills his own Master and sets his own plot in motion. But fortunately... See, that that too gets back to the art style. Because, I mean, you describe it as both of them attacking, and from what I see, I thought it was only his master attacking. And then right as his master goes to deliver the death blow to Val, then we find out, only through the blade coming up through his chest, my apprenticeship is done, and he's wearing that Revan-like looking mask. Oh, yeah. yeah. I but, mean, like, I had no clue he was even there. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, he had to be there somewhere. I mean, in theory, they both came out. I mean, it wasn't like there were three ships that we saw, so he must have at least traveled there with his Sith Master, so it makes sense that they're both disembarking around the same time. But fortunately for Val, at least, uh, a little probe droid, a little uh, uh, messenger uh, emergency droid is released from the downed ship, and while it does get damaged, uh, it carries information about what is going on. And See, and that damage is another one, too. When I was looking at that, I'm like, did it get shot or did it fly into, I mean, is that supposed to be asteroids or shooting stars that it just randomly collided with? Like, I, that's the part I have with the 
the art issue. It's like I'm trying to understand what I'm seeing a lot of the times. Yeah, it looks like teeny tiny rocks smacking on it, but that's pretty freaking convenient for the for it to be going out there and being damaged. You would think the Sith are doing it themselves. Maybe they're throwing it with the Force. But yeah, uh, definitely another moment in which the art does not make it clear. We jump from there to one week later in the Carrera system beyond the Surd Nebula. The Surd Nebula is where Mala is, and this is where most of the action will take place in the Carreras system. We catch Anya Solo, who is a junk dealer. She has her own junkyard here, uh, finishing up a deal in which uh, one of her clients was about to possibly screw her over. And then we immediately jump away from her. We just get a real quick glimpse at her. Not really all that much. Don't know a whole lot about the character yet. And then all of a sudden, we have a ship landing on the communications array to meet with Carreras Governor Biala who apparently is a woman, but I didn't know that until way late in the series because the artwork does not make genders clear either. Um, and out steps a man who is supposed to be Master Yaltaval, but instead of being the man we saw earlier, a man with darker skin and with a beard, um, instead we have this man who is uh, Caucasian with what appears to be basically white or extremely light blonde hair. So we know that there must be some type of switcheroo that's going on, and we assume that it's probably at this point that Sith Apprentice, who when we first met him in Killing His Master, was wearing a mask that hid his physical features. Anya winds up meeting up with a friend of hers, Sauk. Sauk is a Mon Calamari, a species that's in a very interesting situation in this series because, of course, uh, many of them were wiped out and Dak was decimated back in the pages of the original Legacy series. And uh, she's managed to get a hold of that damaged messenger droid. As Sonk works on it, it opens up and drops out Yaltaval's blue lightsaber, or what mm -hmm. I think is supposed to be a blue lightsaber. The colors are so washed out, you can barely tell. It kind of reminds me of what they did with Luke's lightsaber in the training scene in A New Hope as they move between Special Edition and the Blu-rays, where they seems like they kept fluctuating what color they wanted the freaking lightsaber to be because of all the color correction they were doing. See, um, and that's something I'm curious about, too, because, you know, in the Legacy era, I was talking about the fact that uh, Fell, her dad, Empress Fell's dad, uh, Roan, had a blue, or no, he had the silver lightsaber, and she had a blue one, and all the knights had a silver one. Now she has the blue one and is now the Empress, so are all the knights going to switch colors to be like her as part of that whole swearing fealty to the Empress and all that, and they're all united in the one blade? Because that was kind of the, the feeling I got in the first one, but because it's so, you don't know one way or the other, it's kind of hard to apply that, you know? Mm-hmm. And I want to know, is this lightsaber supposed to be like a spare? Is it one that you put on the, the message buoy as a way of proving it really came from an Imperial Knight? Because when Yaltaval was fighting against the Sith Master and then was being held by, by Red, he was carrying his lightsaber. There was never a moment in which his lightsaber got into this droid to be taken away. So it's a spare, kind of like maybe hiding an extra one inside R2-D2 or something. Maybe it's one that's supposed to belong to someone else. I mean, they find it, and it's what sets things in motion here for Anya, but oh. where did the lightsaber come from? I, I just assumed it was the one. I didn't notice he had a second one. Uh, the other thing is is when she shows up on the ship that, that Sock's on, like, it's... It looks like there's a planet like Saturn, and there's rings, and the ship is like... It, it almost looks like it's sitting on the rings. Like, again, the, the, this is where the art gets really weird, because, like, there's a black field around the ship, and then all the black around the ship is removed, and there's a white ring going around. Like, I really don't understand what that ship's doing. Is it parked on the edge of that thing? Is it colliding with the thing? What in the hell is going on? I I, I don't know. I mean, 
I think about Legacy Volume 2, and then I think about Star Wars Volume 2, and it's like where one's art is really great and their story lacks, the other one's story is good, but the art is really lacking. And it's kind of like, can we swap these artists for a little bit and see how the series might improve or disprove? I don't know. At that point, of course, she she's pulled out the lightsaber. She thinks, you know, this may be a chance to, you know, it's, it's their ticket out of there. Um, this, or perhaps the droid, uh, if they can get it fixed and figure out what it is and what the connection is to the Imperial Knights, this may be something that gives an opportunity to go somewhere else. It seems like she's a character who she has, as we find a little bit more about in the, the second arc, people have thought she had a destiny because of her family. She chose to go her own way. So maybe it's a chance to get out of the junkyard and go her own way again in some other fashion that is, of course, her choosing. We jump briefly to Coruscant and see a discussion amongst the uh, the members of the Triumvirate ruling group. Can I just say really quick how much I cannot stand that that is the, is the word that they decide to latch on to out of that entirety? Like, it's what, the uh, Triumvirate something or other federation? It's like the Galactic Triumvirate Federation, and then they stick with the one word that's so hard to say. Like, really, you couldn't just call it the Federation? I get that you got this whole thing with Star Trek, but really, at this point, 140 years later, I think it's okay. Yeah, but Triumvirate has, you know, it's got its historical parallel, too. I mean, that's the way that, um, you know, Julius Caesar and Crassus and uh, Pompey ruled Rome as a triumvirate as they sort of circumvented the whole idea of having the two consuls. It's it's the way that Octavian, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, his old grandnephew, um, and Marcus Lepidus and Mark Anthony ruled Rome. So, I mean, I can see there being a, a purpose to to using that triumvirate phrase, but certainly I think for a lot of folks who aren't as familiar with history, like, for instance, teaching it every day, and in my <laughs> case, um, in fact, we just talked about Julius Caesar and the triumvirate stuff literally the day before we're recording this, um, oh, I don't, I don't think that that's necessarily going to be a phrase that everybody is quite as familiar with and and will be quite as comfortable with. But we see them talking about this mission and the necessary uh, the necessary nature of the arrays, um, about uh, uh, what comes next and all that. You know, we've got uh, Draco, uh, Antares Draco there with the princess, which is okay. I'm finally getting a chance to see those two together again and everything. But and she's not really a princess anymore, right? I mean, she's now full well, on empress. Empress, yeah. Um, and that moves us back to Carreras, and this is where the plot really starts going as far as Darth Red. Um, we don't quite know what his intentions are at first, but Darth Red, uh, a.k.a. the fake Yaltabal in here, because we don't get his name until much later um, in the issues that are already out, but he basically says, look, the, the ship was attacked by the Sith, which is true, except he was one of them. Um, and because of this... You need to put all of your security forces under my control. And we don't need to bother anyone else with this because, you know, I'm an Imperial Knight. You know, I'm equal to this task. Don't worry. Don't bother contacting the Triumvirate about this, even if you could. So it's sort of a, uh, he uses that situation. It's the, what's the line from Rahm Emanuel, the former chief of staff of Obama's White House that never let a good uh, crisis go to waste? He uses a situation in which um, he invents a crisis as a means of getting more power there. And sure enough, he winds up um, being uh, in charge of the security forces when they wind up uh, trying to hunt down that lightsaber. And they find their way to where Anya and Salk are trying to sell it to essentially another junk dealer. And when she is pursued and winds up having to take out one of those guards, when she reveals who she is, Anya Solo... Um, that is going to bring her and where the lightsaber is to the attention uh, of Darth Red for later on. It is only in the last page that we get confirmation of, of what we expected, that yes, there was sort of a swapping of places, because we see this weird little 
well, I would say what kind of alien it is, but instead it's a black and brown blob, thanks to Hartman's artwork. Um, we see uh, Yaltaval being fed slop uh, as he is a prisoner, and he now has the, the face mask of that Sith clamped over his head. Uh, and he they is a never prisoner. say who the henchman is. That that drives me nuts. I'm like, what's the backstory here? Like, was he the old master's henchman, and now he's just defaulted to to where to reds i mean what's going on with that guy i i immediately that threw me off because i thought that it was red as val talking to him i'm like who is this guy talking to him no just just a little henchman that sort of appeared out of nowhere unless he was maybe on the ship with the two sith because hey if we didn't see red get off then no need to say that we necessarily had to see the little henchman get off or anything but that moves us into <laughs> issue two and i gotta say well, issue real quick two, before you get into issue two did you notice the marty mcfly moment with anya um, which one are you referring to? You talking about the whole, uh, uh, with the lightsaber. He goes, hand over the laser yeah. sword, immigrant scum. And then of course, Salk, give him the lightsaber, not scum on you. And she blasts him. It's like scum is her chicken. Yeah. Nobody basically yeah. Me chicken. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I got a kick out of that. It's like, there are some lines that Anya draws in the sand and she will shoot you over it. Well, I'll tell you, Anya may not be chicken, and she may not be scum, She's, but she certainly, apparently, according to the cover of issue number two, is an ape. You got uh, the same feeling? Like, yeah, the total Planet of the Apes feeling? Yeah, if you that? look at the cover of issue number two, we have a couple of, of people, apparently from Carreras, a couple of guards, and we have with them Master Red, which is interesting, or Darth Red, which is interesting because here, he appears to be someone who has... Blonde hair, not someone who has white hair, uh, as it seems within the interior artwork. But then we have Anya Solo, and it says, Anya Solo holds a legacy in her hands. And she's holding the <laughs> lightsaber, and it's ignited. But if you look at Anya Solo's face, she is straight out of Planet of the Apes. I cannot look at that cover without thinking, <laughs> This does not look like Anya Solo. This looks like some kind of, of shaved Wookiee, maybe, or something. What is up? With Anya Solo's face, and who was it that okayed this cover to finally see print? What on earth was Dave Wilkins doing? I, I don't know because it, it reminds, like I look at it and it just gets this feeling like she's becoming his apprentice kind of feeling, like like she has the lightsaber, like because she's the Jedi. And I think that that adds to the misconceptions I had going in because you kept seeing her with the lightsaber, and they were always putting all this emphasis on the lightsaber, but they didn't really tell you why. So you come into it thinking like, okay, like. This has got to do something with her family. Like, because that's where I was coming from. Like, okay, last famous solo, hmm, Jaina Solo, who ends up becoming a fell. Like, I don't know. I mean, that, that for me, like, I was expecting all these family ties with that name and stuff. And to find that that was all lost and that Anya chose to go to the junkyard and yet now she hates that choice and wants to do anything to escape. And, and how exactly is a lightsaber supposed to be a get rich quick scheme? Like, I, I don't know. I, I never put that much value in a lightsaber. Granted, mine originally cost me $200, but that was back before they were everywhere. I don't know. May, maybe there's like a uh, depletion of lightsabers out there. But it's funny, though, that you mentioned that she looked like an ape because that was exactly the... the it, and it's not that she looks too apish. I mean, you know, when you if you look at just her, like she actually kind of has more of like a, a, an Asian kind of look. If you were to look just at her, but with the guys in the background, they have such a gorilla look themselves that it almost looks like like the two enforcers are the gorilla apes and that the guy playing Val has got the orangutan ape thing going on and she's the chimpanzee of the Planet of the Apes scenario. It's like, <laughs> I don't know. It, either that or she's – it's like her face is swollen to the point where a lot of the, the, the physical features you expect of a human 
in terms of cheek structure and eye structure and chin structure are just gone. Uh, and it doesn't help that she has an expression on her face that screams, as, well, it could know. be that right side with the way the right side of her face is lit up by the lightsaber. It's like I almost think like a little bit of the left cheek should also have some of the wash on it, because if you cover at her nose and look at that one side of her face, she actually almost looks like a Sith. Like like it's it's so pale and her eye looks almost yellow. Like put your thumb right on her nostril and look at it. It's like, wow, that looks like. And then from the other side, she actually looks like a regular person. It's that whitewash that really messes up her face to that point where you're like, that's not human. All right, so we move into the next arc, or the next part of the arc, issue number two, and now we meet the other Imperial Knight character who's going to be a major character in this series, which is Joe Awesome, or excuse me, Jow Awesome, not Joe Awesome, Jow Awesome, who is worried that Master Val hasn't checked in yet. He's on the Ithorian uh, uh, satellite within the array, or the, the space-going whatever within the array, and realizes that Master Val may be in trouble. We cut back to the Carrera system, where uh, Sauk and Anya are still being pursued, and uh, at this point, they're not quite sure what to do. Um, Sauk opens up the back door, brings out his lightsaber, and uh, just by accident winds up causing uh, a slash across some pipes that fill the room with steam, or fill the, the little tunnel with steam, and allow them a chance to get the heck out of there. So, and I like how that played out because yeah. I mean, it was the villains that shoot the ship, which causes it to lurch, and Salk is literally falling out. Like a quick play saves his day because he whips out his left hand and grabs the the hatch as his right hand's like dangling out, and it just nicks one of those pipes. I mean, and I thought that was cool, but then she turns the ship really hard and goes upwards, and I'm thinking. That is one heck of a grip that guy's got. There's no way. You're looking at, what, 80-something Gs there? <laughs> like he's, he'd, be, he'd be a bug splat on the side of that wall. But, man, he held on like nobody's business. I thought it was classic. An extreme vice grip for his fishy little hands. Um, we jump then to Mala finally being identified here, that uh, floating world. The world should not have been there. The rogue planet, if you want to call it that. And find yeah, that's what that, I was calling That red is in contact with the captive Master Val. And he has his own plot in mind, um, that the the mask and such was set there. Uh, he was locked into it long ago to temper his weakness, to teach him to hate. And now he wants to do that to Val, because he's actually offering Val a choice. You know, uh, if you embrace the darkness as I have done, you are welcome to join me. We have here a Sith who now is masterless. He essentially is the master trying to break an Imperial Knight and turn him essentially into his apprentice. I found that to be an interesting concept here because it shows maybe a bigger plan in mind mm -hmm. for Red than just, oh, we happen to stumble across this ship and I happen to be able at the right moment to kill my master, so now I've got this Jedi or this uh, Imperial Knight at my mercy that maybe the entire point for uh, Red was to capture the Imperial Knight, which would explain why he killed his master before his master could kill uh, Yalta in the first place. I thought that kind of fit well. Um, we see a meeting between uh, Red and the mostly utterly featureless Governor Biala again, uh, and learn about this whole situation where we have these hoodlums trying to sell a lightsaber. A lightsaber? I'll handle this. And this is what brings this whole situation to the attention of Red. We pick up with Anya and Salk as they are trying to fix 
the little uh, probe droid that they managed to get, and they are visited by an old uh, friend of theirs who happens to be an IG-88-style droid, an IG-series droid, AG-37, who apparently is a fairly long-lived or long-maintained, whatever you want to say, uh, droid, in that he's the one that gives us sort of the historical perspective here. He doesn't talk much, but you get the feeling he's been around for quite a while, kind of like Kukruk. So he's the one who can really sort of put things in perspective of this era versus other ones. Uh, especially we find that as we move towards the next arc. And uh, there's some conversations of, you know, what the Sith used to be like before the one Sith and really kind of having to re-educate people on what things used to be. Whereas AG is one of the few characters who actually lived through it and would have personal experience seeing that. I did like that angle of this sort of bounty hunter mercenary-esque um, IG-88 style droid character. Granted, mm-hmm. I think it's kind of, while neat, also kind of lame to fall back on the IG series droid model yet again, seeing as how we seem to see that so much within the Clone Wars stuff and whatnot. But um, once you're over the fact that it's the same droid type that we've seen so many times, I think it makes for an interesting character. I, I like how you said uh, he's like the Kakruk. I mean, that that's exactly how I looked at him. I mean, Cade had Kakruk to tell him about what was going on with the Jedi from the, you know, long ago. And Anya doesn't have that, you know, like they say, she has no Jedi to lean on. So he is that that voice. Um, you know, really quick, going back to uh, when Val's being tortured, uh, again, the art, th- these are the little things I'm going to nitpick the heck out of it. Because, I mean, for the most part, the art's not too terrible, but we see the henchman and it's like, you can almost see the details of his face. And he's like holding on to a cord in the background. You're like, what is going on with this character? Like, I, I wasn't sure if that was the guard or if that was supposed to be Val in the mask. But you've got Val in the mask, kind of you're looking over his shoulder because the hologram is looking at him. So that's how you're able to tell. But the details on the guard are just so, like, I don't know if that's supposed to be his face or they're just supposed to, like, enshroud him in shadows. And I'm assuming that's his face. Like, he kind of has a clay face from Batman look. That, of course, moves us into the next stage of the chase of Anya and Salk, where uh, we have Red showing up wanting the lightsaber, and when she refuses to give it because it's hers by right of salvage, he simply orders the guards that are with him to kill them all. And that kind of gives us a quick indication, oh wait, uh, yeah, this probably isn't the Imperial Knight who he claims to be. And He's not the Imperial Knight you're looking for. How did he know her name? I mean, he comes out and the first thing is, Aya Solo, oh, but, bring but me my lightsaber! She says, it, she says it in front of the people who tried to capture them the first time. The whole, you know, what you were saying about, you know, I'm not scum. So in theory, somebody would have heard it and reported it back to him. But uh, he manages to essentially, you know, he's, he's the, the typical mustache twirling bad guy. Kill them! I'm leaving! So he heads off and his men follow until um, Anya and Sok manage to reach AG-37, who wipes out many of the pursuers and sort of saves the day for them. But it's the typical overconfident villain thing here in that he doesn't actually do any of the pursuit himself. He lets the minions do it and trust them to get the job done. Then, ironically, berates the governor for the fact that they weren't able to capture her and uses that as an excuse to lock down, essentially, the entire system, um, to lock down Carreras so nobody else is supposed to be able to leave, um, setting in motion the idea of having ships in orbit that will be uh, essential later on in the story. We then move back to Master Zhao, and Zhao is having a conversation with Mara Fell and Antares Draco, the head of the Imperial Knights, over this whole idea of, you know, uh, Yaltaval hasn't made contact, something th- seems wrong, we need to do something, but she's being 
being sort of stubborn on this and saying, no, you stay there, you don't disobey your orders and go after Zhao, but we will find that he will wind up doing so anyway. Um, and as we go along, it's just more of the development of conversations between uh, Antares Draco and Mara CFL, who of course are now uh, together together, it seems. And we jump to move uh, into our, our big uh, turning point of the issue, the cliffhanger we will end on, which is AG-37 and uh, Sauk and Anya in space in AG-37 ship trying to leave. Uh, they wind up coming upon the blockade of ships that has been now ordered by Red, and just before they do, Sauk manages to reactivate at least part of that probe droid that they had, and it shows a recording of the last moments of the ship in which it shows a Sith fighting against Yalta Val. And when they zoom in and look at the face of the Imperial Knight, they realize that's not him. Uh, not only is the lightsaber, which, you know, is somehow in their hands now, not only is it the same color, my Mon Cal friend, it's identical. That is the lightsaber you found. How did it get in the droid? Because now they're saying that it's not possibly a spare, it's the same one he was fighting with against the Sith. How did it get from him into the droid to be with the probe droid when it was found by Anya? There is no logical sense to be made there unless it is a duplicate somehow, or that somehow uh, Yalta Val wasn't using his lightsaber in that confrontation, perhaps because they were caught off guard. But why store it inside an emergency probe droid? In any event, in seeing this lightsaber, they realize that this doesn't belong to the Imperial Knight that confronted them. This belongs to whoever it is who's in the image, and they start that ball rolling on the thought of, wait a second, what if the real knight is the guy with the beard, and the guy with the white hair is actually an imposter? Um, as we move out of issue number two. Now, where is it you were saying that, that you thought Val still had the lightsaber on him? Because I just assumed that he dropped it and the droid had picked it up and that's where it got there. But, I, I mean, that's, that's where I just, I don't notice. Oh, dang, dang, you're right, you're right. I missed the, the horrible freaking artwork makes it difficult to tell. I apologize. There is a reason for it. We see him in issue one. He is uh, down on the ground. Um, he, at, at one point, there's a slash apparently made by the Sith, and we see him go, Ugh! And you see, basically, uh, Yaltaval's arm swing up, and you don't see the lightsaber anywhere anymore. It's not in the shot, from what you can tell, but if you look real close, there is an uncolored, green-as-the-background outline of what I think is supposed to be the lightsaber being slung from his hand by that motion. But you can't tell because they didn't bother to color it in the panel. It's the bottom left panel on the page um, that has the ship falling down the cliff in the first panel. You can just barely see it. And then, as you get to the page where the, the probe droid does take off, um, it checks for survivors, sees the dead Sith, and does retrieve the lightsaber. Um, when I was going through just now and just skimming things over again, I wasn't necessarily reading every panel, and I missed that word retrieve. If you didn't see the word retrieve, I'm not sure you would have noticed that it was supposed to be picking up the lightsaber, because the lightsaber is such so, is of the black, slightly shiny okay. color of all the ground around it. You just see the droid, and I mean, it, yeah. for me, with this artwork, I look for the main meaning of the panel and move on, because the detail isn't there, and it is such a muddy look. 
I don't mm-hmm. really want to focus on it too hard. So seeing this, I'm like, oh, like, for instance, when I skimmed this back over and saw the whole check for survivors, I'll tell you, my eyes missed the fact on the second read through that when it says check for survivors, it's even finding the Sith's body because the Sith's body, you can mm-hmm. see his red face and his red hands, but the rest of his body looks like part of the landscape. It looks like it's rock yeah. because of how poorly done the color separation is and the pencils that are that the colors are over. If you're going to tell a story with this kind of artwork, you got to be more explicit because the artwork muddying up the story isn't good for anybody. So yes, that is the same lightsaber. My apologies. I got confused by the poop style of the artwork. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, that's that is at the heart of our issue. I mean, I, I think for the most part, we're you know trying to enjoy what's going on. It, it's it's hard when the art throws you out. Now we've talked with Beyonders on Facebook. Uh, you know, a lot of you guys out there, you like the Dark Empire style, and 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 it feels like this is a return to it. Uh, no, Nathan and me no, were talking no, about that. No, yeah, no, I do not <laughs> buy that? that. Saying that this is a return to the Dark Empire style of artwork is like saying that the the art style of Star Wars Volume uh, Two. Uh, in the Shadow of Yavin is a return to the art style of the Star Wars uh, manga series, a return to um, Jan Dersima, <laughs> because it happens to use similar colors in, in, in the color palette, and happens to have a manga-esque sort of leaning, or more realistic leaning, or uh, a good leaning than something else that we might have seen. This is not Dark yeah. Empire style. Dark Empire style had sort of jagged lines to it sometimes um, that were more geometric, it had uh, straight lines in a lot of cases when it came to uh, facial features and whatnot, and its color scheme was a mixture of greens, blues, purples, and dark, dark, dark reds. What we get here is a color scheme that includes pretty much any color you would want out of a box of Crayola crayons, except they're all done in sort of a muted pastel type, and you don't have the detail there because the lines sort of blurred together. And when you combine the coloring here that is done by... Uh, Rochelle Rosenberg, um, with the pencils by Gabriel Hardman, you lose a lot of the detail of the images. I don't think I ever had trouble telling what the hell was happening in Dark Empire, even though its art style was somewhat unusual um, from Cam Kennedy, as opposed to some of the art styles we saw in later Star Wars comics. This is not the Dark Empire style of art, unless what you're saying is simply that we've sucked away some of the detail that we get in something like Dersima's art um, in that sense. No, no, I'm not buying that. If your defense of this is, well, it's like Dark Empire, look again. Yeah, I, I, I don't, yeah, the blues and stuff for me, like, that was always something that kind of really threw me off with Dark Empire. I was never really a fan of that style in the first place. Maybe the, the closer you could say is the dark. There's a lot of dark involved. I mean, that, that I could see. There, you know, all the dark, dark colors that were coming involved with the Dark Empire. There's a lot of dark going on in this. Uh, you know, by the time you switch into that sixth issue, it gets really dark, but we'll get there at, at another point. But I don't know. I mean, I, I look at the covers and I, and I, I think, you know, the covers of these look glorious. Um, the covers of Dark Empire, they were fun. They were also dark, but these aren't so dark, you know, not on the cover wise, but yeah, the inside totally dark, but I, yeah, I'm with you. I, I don't quite see the hundred percent connection there in that styling. It's gotta just be the, the darkness of it because that I can, I can get. Uh, you know, you beyonders out there who you know think we're crazy, let us know. You know, throw some comments in on this episode. Let us know what you guys think. You know, we, we really would need to know. And you know, at this point, we've reached about the length that a normal episode would be, and we still have three issues to go. I think we've done a pretty good job of hitting our main issues 
with the artwork and our general impressions of the series here, especially with as much depth as we went into with the spoiler-free stuff. So let's let's do a split here. Let's wait. Next week, let's take a look at issues 3, 4, and 5 so we can get a little bit more depth into that, and that'll allow us perhaps a window to be able to delve just a little bit at the end into that first issue of the next arc so that people can understand what we mean when we say that you get more out of this once you've, you've hit that point. Otherwise, we're going to be going on for probably another good hour, hour and a half just to dig into our thoughts on this because it seems like these have more uh, talking points as we go through an individual issue than some of the other story arcs we've looked at recently. Well, that sounds like a plan. I mean, Darth Red, he's bringing back the rule, too. So let's just cut this sucker in two and only two there are of the Legacy Volume 2 episodes. So look for more of us talking about this in episode 92 next week. Uh, that wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on iTunes, which we encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can find links to our show both on Twitter and our Facebook page at SW Beyond Films, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there be sure to like our page it's one of the best ways to interact with us the beyonder headquarters if you will not only can you post comments to us about the show we love interacting with you fellow fans so if you have any star wars and or eu questions or you just want to comment about a past episode fire off you can even email us at directly it's at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com now before we go we wanted to mention you are our sponsors audible they have that trial if you go to www.audibletrial.com slash star wars report you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about that's right a free book our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles you can explore the star wars expanded universe or any other genre without being stuck with a book you don't like because audible members can exchange any book within 12 months no questions asked so once again in this digital age if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook Audible just might be right for you. That's right. Be sure to check out the Amazon.com shop run by my wife and I. Uh, mainly her, to be honest with you. As Amazon.com slash shops slash Lil Joe Collectibles. L-I-L-J-O Collectibles. Uh, little things there from my collection, from her collection that we're selling off and everything. Uh, with all the, uh, the money issues going around these days. Uh, every little bit helps. If you find something of interest there, uh, uh, give it a click as you go along. And you can even support us directly by going to www.starwarsreport.com support. Not just us, but the entire Star Wars Report network, shows, and site. All of it. So once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that, you know, after having sort of muddy artwork in this one, and even muddier artwork in the next one, that the third arc will simply be solid black pages. Or that John and Jan will show up at the last bit and give us a Hondo Car story to wrap it all up. <laughs> <laughs>